section forty eight of a compendious history of english literature and of the english language volume one this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox dot org a compendious history of english literature and of the english language volume one by george lilly craik chapter four part twenty four sylvester one of the most popular poets of this date was joshua sylvester the translator of the divine weeks and works and other productions of the french poet du barta sylvester has the honour of being supposed to have been one of the early favourites of milton in one of his publications he styles himself a merchant adventurer and he seems to have belonged to the puritan party which may have had some share in influencing milton's regard his translation of du Barta was first published in sixteen o five and the seventh edition beyond which we believe its popularity did not carry it appeared in sixteen forty one nothing can be more uninspired than the general run of joshua's verse or more fantastic and absurd than the greater number of its more ambitious passages for he had no taste or judgment and provided the stream of sound and the jingle of the rhyme were kept up all was right in his notion his poetry consists chiefly of translations from the french but he is also the author of some original pieces the title of one of which a courtly offering from the poetical puritan to the prejudices of king james may be quoted as a lively specimen of his style and genius tobacco battered and the pipes shattered about their ears that idly idolize so base and barbarous a weed or at least wise overlove so loathsome a vanity by a volley of holy shot thundered from mount helicon but with all his general flatness and frequent absurdity sylvester has an uncommon flow of harmonious words at times and occasionally even some fine lines and felicitous expressions his contemporaries called him the silver-tongued sylvester for what they considered the sweetness of his versification and some of his best passages justify the title indeed even when the substance of what he writes approaches nearest to nonsense the sound is often very graceful soothing the ear with something like the swing and ring of dryden's heroics but after a few lines is always sure to come in some ludicrous image or expression which destroys the effect of the whole the translation of du Barta is inscribed to king james in a most adulatory and elaborate dedication consisting of a string of sonnet-shaped stanzas ten in all of which the two first are a very fair sample of the mingled good and bad of sylvester's poetry to england's scotland's france and ireland's king great emperor of europe's greatest isles monarch of hearts and arts and everything beneath boots many thousand miles 
upon whose head honour and fortune smiles about whose brows clusters of crowns do spring whose faith him champion of the faith in styles whose wisdom's fame or all the world doth ring nemozene and her fair daughters bring the daphnian crown to crown him laureate whole and sole sovereign of the thespian spring prince of parnassus and pyrian state and with their crown their kingdom's arms they yield thrice three pens sunlike in a cynthian field signed by themselves and their high treasurer barta the great engrossed by sylvester our sun did set and yet no night ensued our woeful loss so joyful gain did bring in tears we smile amid our sighs we sing so suddenly our dying light renewed as when the arabian only bird doth burn her aged body in sweet flames to death out of her cinders a new bird hath breath in whom the beauties of the first return from spicy ashes of the sacred urn of our dead phoenix dear elizabeth a new true phoenix lively flourisheth whom greater glories than the first adorn so much o king thy sacred worth presume i on james thou just heir of england's joyful union it is not to be denied that there is considerable skill in versification here and also some ingenious rhetoric but not to notice the pervading extravagance of the sentiment some of the best sounding of the lines and phrases have next to no meaning and the close of each stanza that of the last in particular is in the manner of a ludicrous travesty many of sylvester's conceits however belong to the original upon which he worked and which upon the whole may be considered as fairly represented perhaps occasionally improved in his translation some passages are very melodiously given the following for instance the commencement of which may put the reader in mind of milton's hail holy light offspring of heaven first-born all hail pure lamp bright sacred and excelling sorrow and care darkness and dread repelling thou world's great taper wicked men's just terror mother of truth true beauty's only mirror god's eldest daughter oh how thou art full of grace and goodness oh how beautiful but yet because all pleasures wax unpleasant if without pause we still possess them present and none can right discern the sweets of peace that have not felt war's irksome bitterness and swans seem whiter if swart crows be by for contraries each other best descry the all's architect alternately decreed that night the day the day should night succeed the night to temper day's exceeding drought moistens our air and makes our earth to sprout the night is she that all our travails eases buries our cares and all our griefs appeases 
the night is she that with her sable wing in gloomy darkness hushing everything through all the world dumb silence doth distil and wearied bones with quiet sleep doth fill sweet night without thee without thee alas our life were loathsome even a hell to pass for outward pains and inward passions still with thousand deaths would soul and body thrill o night thou pullest the proud mask away wherewith vain actors in this world's great play by day disguise them for no difference night makes between the peasant and the prince the poor and rich the prisoner and the judge the foul and fair the master and the drudge the fool and wise barbarian and the greek for night's black mantle covers all alike he that condemned for some notorious vice seeks in the mines the baits of avarice or melting at the furnace findeth bright our soul's dire sulphur resteth yet at night he that still stooping tugs against the tide his laden barge alongst a river's side and filling shores with shouts doth melt him quite upon his pallet resteth yet at night he that in summer in extremest heat scorched all day in his own scalding sweat shaves with keen scythe the glory and delight of motley meadows resteth yet at night and in the arms of his dear fear foregoes all former troubles and all former woes only the learned sister's sacred minions while silent night under her sable pinions folds all the world with painless pain they tread a sacred path that to the heavens doth lead and higher than the heavens their readers raise upon the wings of their immortal lays chapman's homer of the translators from the ancients in this age by far the greatest is chapman george chapman was born at hitching hill in the county of hertford in fifteen fifty seven and lived till sixteen thirty four besides his plays which will be afterwards noticed he is the author of several original poetical pieces but he is best and most favourably known by his versions of the iliad and the odyssey he would have made a great epic poet charles lamb has said in his specimens of the english dramatic poets turning to these works after having characterized his dramas if indeed he has not abundantly shown himself to be one for his homer is not so properly a translation as the stories of achilles and ulysses rewritten the earnestness and passion which he has put into every part of these poems would be incredible to a reader of mere modern translations his almost greek zeal for the honour of his heroes is only paralleled by that fierce spirit of hebrew bigotry with which milton as if personating one of the zealots of the old law clothed himself when he sat down to paint the acts of samson against the uncircumcised the great obstacle to chapman's translations being read is their unconquerable quaintness he pours out in the same breath the most just and natural and the most violent and forced expressions he seems to grasp whatever words come first to hand during the impetus of inspiration as if all other must be inadequate to the divine meaning but passion the all-in-all in poetry is everywhere present raising the low 
dignifying the mean and putting sense into the absurd he makes his readers glow weep tremble take any affection which he pleases be moved by words or in spite of them be disgusted and overcome that disgust chapman's homer is in some respects not unworthy of this enthusiastic tribute few writers have been more copiously inspired with the genuine frenzy of poetry with that fine madness which as drayton has said in his lines on marlowe rightly should possess a poet's brain indeed in the character of his genius out of the province of the drama chapman bears a considerable resemblance to marlowe whose unfinished translation of musius's hero and leander he completed with more judgment and more care he might have given to his native language in his version of the iliad one of the very greatest of the poetical works it possesses but what except the most extreme irregularity and inequality a rough sketch rather than a finished performance was to be expected from his boast of having translated half the poem namely the last twelve books in fifteen weeks yet rude and negligent upon the whole as it is chapman's is by far the most homeric iliad we yet possess the enthusiasm of the translator for his original is uncompromising to a degree of the ludicrous of all books he exclaims in his preface extant in all kinds homer is the first and best and in the same spirit in quoting a passage from pliny's natural history in another portion of his preliminary matter he proceeds first to turn it into verse that no prose may come near homer in spite however of all this eccentricity and of a hurry and impetuosity which betray him into many mistranslations and on the whole have the effect perhaps of giving a somewhat too tumultuous and stormy representation of the homeric poetry the english into which chapman transfuses the meaning of the mighty ancient is often singularly and delicately beautiful he is the author of nearly all the happiest of the compound epithets which pope has adopted and of many others equally musical and expressive far-shooting phoebus the ever-living gods the many-headed hill the ivory-wristed queen are a few of the felicitous combinations with which he has enriched his native tongue carelessly executed indeed as the work for the most part is there is scarcely a page of it that is not irradiated by gleams of the truest poetic genius often in the midst of a long paragraph of the most chaotic versification the fatigued and distressed ear is surprised by a few lines or maybe sometimes only a single line musical as is apollo's lute and sweet and graceful enough to compensate for ten times as much ruggedness such for instance is the following version of part of the description of the visit paid by ulysses and his companions to the shrine of apollo at chrysa in the first book the youths crowned cups of wine drank off and filled again to all that day was held divine and spent in paeans to the sun who heard with pleased ear when whose bright chariot stooped to see and twilight hid the clear all soundly on their cable slept even till the night was worn and when the lady of the light the rosy-fingered morn rose from the hills all fresh arose and to the camp retired 
while phoebus with a foreright wind their swelling bark inspired and here are a few more verses steeped in the same liquid beauty from the catalogue of the ships in the second book who dwell in pelas sandy soil and arene the fair in thyron near alpheus flood and epi full of air in cyparisius amphigen and little Telion, the town where all the eliots dwell and famous dorion where all the muses opposite in strife of poesy to ancient thamyris of thrace did use him cruelly he coming from eurydice's court the wise ecalian king because he proudly durst affirm he could more sweetly sing than that pyrian race of jove they angry with his vaunt bereft his eyesight and his song that did the ear enchant and of his skill to touch his harp disfurnished his hand all these in ninety hollow keels grave nestor did command almost the whole of this second book indeed is admirably translated in the harangues particularly of agamemnon and the other generals in the earlier part of it all the fire of homer burns and blazes in english verse harrington fairfax fanshawe of the translators of foreign poetry which belong to this period three are very eminent sir john harrington's translation of the orlando furioso first appeared in fifteen ninety one when the author was in his thirtieth year it does not convey all the glow and poetry of ariosto but it is nevertheless a performance of great ingenuity and talent the translation of tasso's great epic by edward fairfax was first published under the title of godfrey of burloyne or the recovery of jerusalem in sixteen hundred this is a work of true genius full of passages of great beauty and although by no means a perfectly exact or servile version of the italian original is throughout executed with as much care as taste and spirit sir richard fanshawe is the author of versions of camion's luciad of guerarini's pastor fido of the fourth book of the aeneid of the odes of horace and of the querer por solo querer to love for love's sake of the spanish dramatist mendoza some passages from the last-mentioned work which was published in sixteen forty nine may be found in lamb's specimens the ease and flowing gaiety of which never have been excelled even in original writing the pastor fido is also rendered with much spirit and elegance fanshawe is besides the author of a latin translation of fletcher's faithful shepherdess and of some original poetry his genius however was sprightly and elegant rather than lofty and perhaps he does not succeed so well in translating poetry of a more serious style at least mickle the modern translator of camions in the discourse prefixed to his own version speaks with great contempt of that of his predecessor affirming not only that it is exceedingly unfaithful but that fanshawe had not the least idea of the dignity of the epic style or of the true spirit of poetical translation he seems also to sneer 
at fanshawe's lusiad because it was published during the usurpation of cromwell as if even the poets and translators of that time must have been a sort of illegitimates and usurpers in their way but fanshawe was all his life a steady royalist and served both charles i and his son in a succession of high employments mickle in truth was not the man to appreciate either fanshawe or cromwell drummond one of the most graceful poetical writers of the reign of james i is william drummond of hawthornden near edinburgh and he is further deserving of notice as the first of his countrymen at least of any eminence who aspired to write in english he has left us a quantity of prose as well as verse the former very much resembling the style of sir philip sidney in his arcadia the latter in manner and spirit formed more upon the model of surrey or rather upon that of petrarch and the other italian poets whom surrey and many of his english successors imitated no early english imitator of the italian poetry however has excelled drummond either in the sustained melody of his verse or its rich vein of thoughtful tenderness we will transcribe one of his sonnets as a specimen of the fine moral painting tinged with the colouring of scholarly recollections in which he delights to indulge trust not sweet soul those curled waves of gold with gentle tides that on your temples flow nor temples spread with flakes of virgin snow nor snow of cheeks with tyrian grain enrolled trust not those shining lights which wrought my woe when first i did their azure rays behold nor voice whose sounds more strange effects do show than of the thracian harper have been told look to this dying lily fading rose dark hyacinth of late whose blushing beams made all the neighbouring herbs and grass rejoice and think how little is twixt life's extremes the cruel tyrant that did kill those flowers shall once i me not spare that spring of yours davies a remarkable poem of this age first published in fifteen ninety nine is the nasce typesum of sir john davies who was successively solicitor and attorney-general in the reign of james and had been appointed to the place of chief justice of the king's bench when he died before he could enter upon its duties in sixteen twenty six davies is also the author of a poem on dancing entitled orchestra and of some minor pieces all distinguished by vivacity as well as precision of style but he is only now remembered for his philosophical poem the earliest of the kind in the language it is written in rhyme in the common heroic ten-syllable verse but disposed in quatrains like the early play of misogynists already mentioned and other poetry of the same era or like sir thomas overbury's poem of the wife the gondibert of sir william devenant and the annus mirabilis of dryden at a later period no one of these writers has managed this difficult stanza so successfully as davies it has the disadvantage of requiring the sense to be in general closed at certain regularly and quickly recurring turns which yet are very ill adapted for an effective pause and even all the skill of dryden has been unable to free it from a certain air of monotony and languor a circumstance of which that poet may be supposed to have been himself sensible since he wholly abandoned it 
after one or two early attempts davies however has conquered its difficulties and as has been observed perhaps no language can produce a poem extending to so great a length of more condensation of thought or in which fewer languid verses will be found in fact it is by this condensation and sententious brevity so carefully filed and elaborated however as to involve no sacrifice of perspicuity or fulness of expression that he has attained his end every quatrain is a pointed expression of a separate thought like one of rochefoucauld's maxims each thought being by great skill and painstaking in the packing made exactly to fit and to fill the same case it may be doubted however whether davies would not have produced a still better poem if he had chosen a measure which would have allowed him greater freedom and real variety unless indeed his poetical talent was of a sort that required the suggestive aid and guidance of such artificial restraints as he had to cope with in this and what would have been a bondage to a more fiery and teeming imagination was rather a support to his he wrote among other things a number of acrostics upon the name of queen elizabeth which says ellis are probably the best acrostics ever written and all equally good but they seem to prove that their author was too fond of struggling with useless difficulties perhaps he found the limitations of the acrostic too a help rather than a hindrance done the title of the metaphysical school of poetry which in one sense of the words might have been given to davies and his imitators has been conferred by dryden upon another race of writers whose founder was a contemporary of davies the famous dr john dunn dean of st paul's dunn who died at the age of fifty-eight in sixteen thirty one is said to have written most of his poetry before the end of the sixteenth century but none of it was published till late in the reign of james it consists of lyrical pieces entitled songs and sonnets epithalamiums or marriage songs funeral and other elegies satires epistles and divine poems on a superficial inspection dunn's verses look like so many riddles they seem to be written upon the principle of making the meaning as difficult to be found out as possible of using all the resources of language not to express thought but to conceal it nothing is said in a direct natural manner conceit follows conceit without intermission the most remote analogies the most far-fetched images the most unexpected turns one after another surprise and often puzzle the understanding while things of the most opposite kinds the harsh and the harmonious the graceful and the grotesque the grave and the gay the pious and the profane meet and mingle in the strangest of dances but running through all this bewilderment a deeper insight detects not only a vein of the most exuberant wit but often the sunniest and most delicate fancy and the truest tenderness and depth of feeling dunn though in the latter part of his life he became a very serious and devout poet as well as man began by writing amatory lyrics the strain of which is anything rather than devout and in this kind of writing he seems to have formed his poetic style which for such compositions would to a mind like his be the most natural and expressive of any the species of lunacy which quickens and exalts the imagination of a lover would in one of so seething a brain as he was strive to expend itself in all sorts of novel and wayward combinations just as shakespeare has made it do in his romeo and juliet whose rich intoxication of spirit he has by nothing else set so livingly 
before us as by making them thus exhaust all the eccentricities of language in their struggle to give expression to that inexpressible passion which had taken captive the whole heart and being of both donne's later poetry in addition to the same abundance and originality of thought often running into a wildness and extravagance not so excusable here as in his erotic verses is famous for the singular movement of the versification which has been usually described as the extreme degree of the rugged and tuneless pope has given us a translation of his four satires into modern language which he calls the satires of dr donne versified their harshness as contrasted with the music of his lyrics has also been referred to as proving that the english language at the time when donne wrote had not been brought to a sufficiently advanced state for the writing of heroic verse in perfection that this last notion is wholly unfounded numerous examples sufficiently testify not to speak of the blank verse of the dramatist the rhymed heroics of shakespeare of fletcher of johnson of spencer and of other writers contemporary with and of earlier date than donne are for the most part as perfectly smooth and regular as any that have since been written at all events whatever irregularity may be detected in them if they be tested by pope's narrow gamut is clearly not to be imputed to any immaturity in the language these writers evidently preferred and cultivated deliberately and on principle a wider compass and freer and more varied flow of melody than pope had a taste or an ear for nor can it be questioned we think that the peculiar construction of donne's verse in his satires and many of his other later poems was also adopted by choice and on system his lines though they will not suit the seesaw style of reading verse to which he probably intended that they should be invincibly impracticable are not without a deep and subtle music of their own in which the cadences respond to the sentiment when enunciated with a true feeling of all that they convey they are not smooth or luscious verses certainly nor is it contended that the endeavour to raise them to as vigorous and impressive a tone as possible by depriving them of all over-sweetness or liquidity has not been carried too far but we cannot doubt that whatever harshness they have was designedly given to them and was conceived to infuse into them an essential part of their relish here is one of donne's songs sweetest love i do not go for weariness of thee nor in hope the world can show a fitter love for me but since that i must die at last tis best that to use myself in jest by feigned death to die yesternight the sun went hence and yet is here to-day he hath no desire nor sense nor half so short a way then fear not me but believe that i shall make hastier journey since i take more wings and spurs than he oh how feeble is man's power that if good fortune fall cannot add another hour nor a lost hour recall but come bad chance and we and we join to it our strength and we teach it art and length itself or us to advance when thou sighest thou sighest not wind but sighest my soul away when thou weep'st unkindly kind my life's blood doth decay it cannot be that thou lov'st me as thou sayest if in thine my life thou waste which art the life of me let not thy divining heart forethink me any ill 
destiny may take thy part and may thy fills fulfil but think that we are but laid aside to sleep they who one another keep alive ne'er parted be somewhat fantastic as this may be thought it is surely notwithstanding full of feeling and nothing can be more delicate than the execution nor is it possible that the writer of such verses can have wanted an ear for melody however capriciously he may have sometimes experimented upon language in the effort as we conceive to bring a deeper more expressive music out of it than it would readily yield we add one of his elegies as a specimen of his more elaborate style language thou art too narrow and too weak to ease us now great sorrows cannot speak if we could sigh our accents and weep words grief wears and lessens that tears breath affords sad hearts the less they seem the more they are so guiltiest men stand mutest at the bar not that they know not feel not their estate but extreme sense has made them desperate sorrow to whom we owe all that we be tyrant in the fifth and greatest monarchy was that she did possess all hearts before thou hast killed her to make thy empire more knewest thou some would that knew her not lament as in a deluge perish the innocent was not enough to have that palace won but thou must raise it too that was undone hadst thou stayed there and looked out at her eyes all had adored thee that now from thee flies for they let out more light than they took in they told not when but did the day begin she was too sapphirine and clear for thee clay flint and jet now thy fit dwellings be alas she was too pure but not too weak who e'er saw crystal ordinance but would break and if we be thy conquest by her fall thou hast lost thy end in her we perish all or if we live we live but to rebel that know her better now who knew her well if we should vapour out and pine and die since she first went that were not misery she changed our world with hers now she is gone mirth and prosperity is oppression for of all moral virtues she was all that ethics speak of virtues cardinal her soul was paradise the cherubim set to keep it was grace that kept out sin she had no more than let in death for we all reap consumption from one fruitful tree god took her hence lest some of us should love her like that plant him and his laws above and when we tears he mercy shed in this to raise our minds to heaven where now she is who if her virtues would have let her stay we had had a saint have now a holiday her heart was that strange bush where sacred fire religion did not consume but inspire such piety so chaste use of god's day that what we turned to feast she turned to pray and did prefigure here in devout taste the rest of her high sabbath which shall last angels did hand her up who next god dwell for she was of that order whence most fell her bodies left with us lest some had said she could not die except they saw her dead for from less virtue and less beauteousness the gentiles framed them gods and goddesses the ravenous earth that now woos her to be earth to will be a lemnia and the tree that wraps that crystal in a wooden round shall be took up strews filled with diamond and we her sad glad friends all bear a part of grief for all would break a stoic's heart End of section forty eight